Here we go. Hebrews 9, verse 15 to 22. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, this is really important, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, there's some exceptions. There were some sacrifices for poor people where they could give pigeons and I think grain. There were some grain offerings too. But almost all uh, atonement for sin in the old system, the Old Testament system, was purification with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these... For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And everyone says a hearty amen. Isn't that good? That's a good thing, right? That's a, we're going to spend a little bit of time on that later. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen, yeah? Isn't that good? Okay, I was talking to one of my sons last night, and he said, Dad, you often use words in church that I don't understand. Now, there's a lot of stuff in That's pretty complex, right? That passage of Scripture, and you're probably, your head, you might be like a Warner Brothers cartoon at the moment where you've got the stars spinning around your head. So I'm going to break it down into four main points for today out of that. The first one's this, sin traps you. First one. Second point's this. This is where we're going today. Sin limits God's options. Three, what God did. And number four, Jesus' dealing with sin means you can finish strong. Here's the first one, sin traps you. It says here, Therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you notice the last part of that verse there is Jesus comes to deal with sin because people are stuck in the old setup, all right? And the old setup is you've got to get everything right. So people are stuck in it. Sin has a way of actually trapping people. Now, the interesting thing about this is we can start talking about the fact people are sinners and they're trapped, they're disobedient to God and they're trapped in it and God comes to rescue them. And a lot of people who have been in the church long enough just kind of go, yeah, I've heard this before. But sometimes you just need to stop, don't you? I mean, just sit there and think for a few moments about some of the sin that you've seen around you, some of the sin that you've had done to you, and just think about the claustrophobic effect of sin. Have you noticed that? It's just claustrophobic. 
I mean, people start getting selfish about stuff and things just start getting tighter and tighter and tighter and more difficult and more difficult. In my house, if someone in my house decides that they're going to be really selfish and just live for themselves, that has an incredibly constricting effect on everyone else in the household. It has a trapping effect. And it gets very, very difficult when you have someone being selfish. And I mean, this happens often in marriages too. People will get very, one partner will get very, very selfish. And all of a sudden, the freedom and the liberty that existed in the relationship disappears. And it just gets incredibly tight and incredibly trapping. Now, this is in, entirely the case when it comes to uh, the spiritual side of things. You see, it says in Romans 5 verse, verse 6 that while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Christ came to save people who are trapped. Trapped. And you know what? Christ came to save people who trap others by their sin and by the things that they do. When in a room this big, there's going to be people here at some point in their lives who are trapped because of sins that have been committed against them. That's the nature of it. All right? And then what people do because of sins often that have been committed against them is that they sin... And they handle it in ways that make it worse and then they become more and more trapped. I was watching a, uh, a movie the other night and uh, I won't tell you which movie it is but I was watching a movie the other night and this dude in the movie had been doing some stuff that he shouldn't have been doing and the guys who were in charge got a hold of him and they stuck him in this tyre column, right? And he was stuck in this tyre column and his arms were down beside his sides and they were getting a hangman's noose ready, and then they decided they were going to burn him with petrol. And here's this guy, and he's just stuck in this column of tyres, and he just can't get out of it. See, that's what sin does, right? You just get stuck in it, and you can't get out of it. You can't save yourself. There's no chance you need a saviour. Sin does not bring freedom. Sin does not bring freedom. That's one of the classic, classic deceptions of sin and disobedience to God. If I could just do whatever I want, I'll be free. It doesn't work. Sin brings slavery. That's what we know out of Romans 6, the first part of Romans 6. Sin brings slavery and being trapped. I want to show you a uh, a short clip um, I've called today's uh, The Deep Magic, which is a C.S. Lewis idea out of the uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. And what I want you to notice, this goes for about four or five minutes, this clip, but just watch this clip and notice the trapping nature of sin. Because the really interesting thing that you might notice about this is that sin, this is a story of, uh, of Edmund. And Edmund defected to the dark side, basically, is what he did. He believed the witch and he went and followed the witch and Aslan the lion, who was the good guy, um, who Edmund was meant to stay in line with Aslan, he didn't, he was a traitor. And, and what I want you to notice is not just the trapping effect of sin on Edmund, but the trapping effect of sin, the sin of Edmund on Aslan, all right? Because all of a sudden, because you got to, this is one of the things I want you to get today, is that sin doesn't just trap you and it doesn't just trap people around you, but it traps God a little bit too. Now, that's a little bit controversial, but it just does, and we'll see that in a minute. Here we go.
You have a traitor in your midst, Aslan. His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Try and take him then. Do you really think that mere force will deny me my right? Little king. Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. As is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I shall talk with you alone. She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. How do I know your promise will be kept? see that the sin of Edmund the traitorous sin of Edmund didn't just trap him but it trapped Aslan as well it gave Aslan limited options about how he was actually going to handle it you see sin and disobedience from God is a massive problem and I want you to hear me this morning it's the problem most of Australia doesn't think it's the problem and maybe a lot of us don't think it's the problem maybe you need to get your aircon fixed Maybe, uh, you know, you've got to get your children fixed. This is the problem. This is the biggest problem for you and for me, is sin. And the, big, the interesting thing that Aslan says here to the witch is he says, Edmund's offence was not against her. Edmund's offence was against Aslan. Our offence is not against the people that we sin against. It's not the people we're selfish with. Our offence always has a Godward orientation. David in his uh, psalm of confession, his song of confession after sinning big time, committing adultery and getting a guy murdered, he makes this comment, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
and done what is evil in your sight. It's treason. Every sinful act primarily has a Godward orientation. Sin traps you in a hostile posture toward God. So if you think about your posture right now sitting there, your spiritual posture when you're trapped and stuck in sin is hostility toward God. And the interesting thing is that we find that very, very difficult to own. G.K. Chesterton, in answer to the question of what was wrong with the world posed by the London Times, wrote the following famous letter. Dear sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. It's true, isn't it? I mean, you've only got to have kids to know that they're always looking for someone else to blame. It's always someone else's fault, what's going on for them, or maybe it's the weather's. And the interesting thing is that sometimes the church can get into a little bit of trouble with talking about sin. Atheists in particular don't really like it that much that the church is kind of on about sin all the time. But sin's a big issue. And there's some churches that would probably say of us at the project here that we talk about sin too much. That's too dark. But see, you need to see sin for what it is so that you see grace for what it is. You don't know how dark darkness is unless you've actually seen light, true? John Lennox actually uh, wrote a book called Gunning for God. In it, he, uh, he said this, Most of us, if we got cancer, would find that fact at once becoming the central focus of our lives. Furthermore, we would expect the overwhelming focus of our doctors and consultants to be on that cancer in the hope of curing the disease and restoring us to health so that our focus could then be directed, no doubt, overwhelmingly elsewhere. He goes on to say, Sin is like a cancer. It eats up the possibility of real peace, joy and happiness. The reason Christianity has so much to say about it is not because of morbid preoccupation. It is because Christianity offers us both a realistic diagnosis of the problem of human sin and a solution to it that brings new, satisfying and meaningful life with it. Atheism offers neither. It's good, isn't it? Now, there's one caveat I'd like to throw in there, one qualification I'd like to throw in here. And this is really, really important. And I think probably, to be honest, I've stepped over the... I've been on the wrong side of this line quite a few times, I think, probably even in my preaching, if I go back five to ten years or so. You guys have probably been okay at the project here, but... You can err. You can err in not talking about sin enough, but you can also err in thinking that acknowledgement and seeing sin and the, and the evil inside of people is actually the change agent itself. Knowledge of sin is never the change agent. It, doesn't, it, it never works as a change agent. Because, you know, in Romans 2 it says, or do you not know that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? Grace is always the thing that changes. But you need to know the sin so you know the kindness, true? Amen? If you don't know the sin, you don't know the kindness. And then you've become a spoilt brat. You just think, why isn't he giving me this? And why isn't he giving this? He's just a bad God. Well, the truth is he's giving you a whole bunch of things you don't notice, you're not really appreciating right now because you don't realise the situation that you're in. There's a great question that Paul Tripp asks. He says, are you asking the Lord to do what only grace can accomplish? And if we're to be honest with ourselves, a lot of the time I think my instant reaction with other people when they're not doing what I want them to do is I want to lay down the law on them and I think I'm going to challenge them and I'm going to lay down the law and that's going to change them. Well, the truth is that's probably going to be in the mix, right? Because the Bible talks a lot about rebuke, but that's not going to be the change agent. The change agent is always God being kind and gracious 
and giving gifts to you that you don't deserve and you knowing that you don't deserve it and then getting it and your heart being changed in the midst of that. Amen? Is that true? And if you're here today and you're not actually a Christian today, you just need to know that there's a sense in which God's angry with you, but there's also a sense in which God wants to bring resolution to the hostility between you and he. he. You deserve to be in a lot of trouble. And in fact, probably in one sense, you are in a lot of trouble, but he wants to be kind and generous to you. That's what he's like. Number two, sin limits God's options. It's a really interesting point. God's omnipotence does not mean that he can do anything at all. This is some of you going, whoa, we've got some heresy coming today. The new church is going to be good. God's omnipotence does not mean that he can do anything at all. He's only unlimited in what power can do. Case in point, Hebrews 6, 18, it's impossible for God to lie. So if you go out and say, God can do anything he wants, he can't lie. And the reason why he can't lie is because he never lies, because it's part of his character. There's something about the fabric of him that he just can't do it. Now, who's anyone here happy about the fact that God can't lie? Oh, heck yeah, I am. All right? Because, I mean, that would make reading the Bible a real mess, wouldn't it? Like, if God could lie, you just go, oh, well, like, well, how do we know? You know? It's like we need some kind of Isaiah that's going to give us a bit of a feed on it. Well, let me give you a few more hardwired limitations that exist according to Hebrews 9. Here's the first one New deals, covenants, and wills are enacted through blood. This is what Hebrews 9 says. You can read this later, but Hebrews 9 says you don't get a new deal with God unless there's blood on the table, all right? Not from someone's nose, okay? The blood on the table, all right? That's just how it happens. It's just a hardwired thing. You start a new covenant, new deal, there's gonna be, there needs to be blood on the table. Second one's this. Purification of evil and sin can only happen with blood or with sacrifice. This is like the deep magic of the universe, right? It's just there. You just can't, you can't do anything about this. It's almost like this is part of the nature of the way that things are and the way that God is. It's just, that's how it is, all right? So you're not going to get any purification or forgiveness without there being blood. And the last one here, which is a bit of a disturbing one, which is about a chapter ahead, is that bull and goat sacrifices, I might read it, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, you should be starting to see a bit of an issue, right? You've got humanity that God's created. They've disobeyed him. They've become evil and sinful. There's been a system to deal with sins, but the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 that they, the bulls and goats never really dealt with sins properly. So you, get, you should get the feeling here that we're stuck again, right? We're trapped because there's no way of actually dealing with this sin issue because the old sacrifices were not enough. These three things, and there's more rigid kind of limitations that, that God operates within for whatever reason, these three things are what God has to operate within. Now, I reckon it leaves God with only two options with regard to humanity. Here they are. He could abandon us or he could offer himself in self-sacrifice for us. There's not really any other options, right? He doesn't have some funky angel with a nice hairdo that's going to be good for a sacrifice, right? Just, well, we'll execute him and he's going to... It's like there was no other option. Now, atheists really, really struggle with this. 
Because this is amazing. This is incredibly <coughs> amazing. And we'll get to uh, a little bit of stuff from the atheist later on. But this is amazing. Psalm 94 verse 14. Listen to this. This is the character of God, right? You think about our society and you think about... I mean, we've got a lot of issues across the world with abandonment, don't we? I mean, how many orphanages are out there? How many flies buzzing in my face? How many orphanages are out there? I mean, we've got a situation, massive situation in the West with fathers abandoning their kids to a large degree when marriages break up. There's a lot of abandonment. So God's got this option and he, he would actually, this is a really interesting thing, he would actually be justified in abandoning us. He wouldn't be unrighteous or unholy or uh, imperfect for abandoning us because we're treasonous. But it says in Psalm 94 verse 14, listen to the character of God, you've got to hear this, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He'll not abandon his heritage. God's not into abandonment. When the choice comes up for God between abandonment and self-sacrifice, which one do you reckon he chooses? He chooses self-sacrifice. And we write movies about it, don't we? I mean, it's, it's so much part of the fabric of, of, the, of the grand narrative, the meta-narrative, is that we write movies. That's the thing that touches us the most in a movie. You get to the end of a movie and, and everything's on the line and some dude or some lady gives their life for someone else and it's like the moment that resolution gets brought to a movie... And it just touches us all the time. Well, this is what God did. God offered himself. This is point three, what God did. You know what Jesus did? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all got together basically. I don't know whether they have meetings or anything, all right? But they got together and I thought, we've got to do something. We're not going to abandon them because we don't do that. We don't do abandoning. We do self-sacrifice. And Jesus was the one that came with the self-sacrifice. Now note this out of Hebrews 9 verse 24 to 26 on the screen there. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that's like the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, which are copies of the true things. This is really interesting, right? If, you ever, if you've ever been in the Old Testament, you read all the stuff about how the tabernacle's got to happen and the temple and the measurements and the pomegranates and the angels and the wings and the cherubim and, and it's just incredibly detailed. You know why it's so detailed? Because that's the Truman Show, right? You see the movie, The Truman Show? The real world was happening outside of this Truman Show. And Truman was on a movie set and he thought that was the real world. But the real world was happening outside of that. And the point of the movie is that he finds out that he's actually in a show and he'd been there since he was born and he thought that was reality. Reality is not actually the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament. Reality is heaven itself, all right? This world here, in a sense, is the Truman Show. And in the Old Testament, when God gives the details about how the temple and everything should look, it's all about this is how it's got to be because this is a shadow and a copy of what it's like in heaven, right? So what you've got going on in the temple and the tabernacle all the time is this process all the time that mirrors ultimately what needs to happen in the real temple, the real tabernacle. Does that make sense? For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. See, he's gone and done the full job. Everyone else was just in the Truman Show, right? He's gone and done the full job. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year. Note this last bit. 
the priests used to go in with blood not their own. You see, that's almost a bit of a hint of deep magic as well, right? It's almost like for this evil and this sin and this disobedience to be dealt with, someone needs to go, someone good enough needs to go with their own blood. And it's like watching a movie where you're just kind of going, Who, who's, someone needs to help out. Who's going to be good enough? Who's going to be good enough to help these people? And I'm sure, I don't know, I, I don't know about the angels, but sometimes I think maybe the angels in heaven are going, well, they're in a heck of a state. Who's going to help them? Who's good enough? You know, and, there's, and they've gone through the angels. That, you know, this is not in the Bible, but you know what I'm saying. There's, there's no other option. This thing is such a mess that it needs someone good enough to go in with their own blood. For then he would have had to, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the, wor- of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin with the sacrifice of himself. You see, the way that God deals with sin is incredibly stupendous. There you go. You know what stupendous means? It's extremely impressive, isn't it? Isn't it extremely impressive? You just go, that's amazing. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you choose self-sacrifice to save a bunch of criminals? Why would you do that? That is extremely impressive. Have you ever had the thought... Have you ever had the thought that it's too good to be true? Have you ever had the thought that it's weird? I've had the thought it's weird. I just think, this is incredibly weird, that God would come down and that he would die for me. That's really, really weird. And sometimes you can actually tell people who aren't people who normally go to church and don't know the Bible that much, you can tell them about how God came down and became a man and, then he, and you just kind of go, oh, this just sounds really weird. Yeah. Have you ever had that experience? You just, oh, it's really weird. Well, I'm telling you, the atheists think it's really dumb. All right? They think God becoming a man and dying for people is really stupid. Okay? Richard Dawkins actually uh, calls it cosmic child abuse. All right? Cosmic child abuse. Christopher Hitchens, who used to be an atheist, but he died in 2011 and he's not anymore, said this, Ask yourself the question, how moral is the following? I'm told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it and in circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. In consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me and I may hope to enjoy eternal life. Atheists think it's stupid. And I want to suggest to you a few reasons why I think people think the sacrifice of Jesus is stupid. The first thing is this. It's pretty barbaric. True? Yeah. You actually watch The Passion of the Christ. It's pretty <laughs> barbaric. Um, my brother-in-law, I'll tell you this, this is classic. My brother-in-law and uh, sister were telling me about a story because we just uh, got VIP passes for the kids and we've been to some of the theme parks, going to see the polar bears. And they said, oh, yeah, some friends of ours went and saw the polar bears at SeaWorld. And this is a true story, absolutely true story, not even making this up. Not that I make everything else up, but you know what I'm saying. The, uh, these people are watching the polar bears, right? True story, and an ibis flies through the enclosure and this polar bear pins the ibis to the wall and then proceeds to eat it in front of everyone watching. <laughs> All right? And I'm just going, oh, that, that would have been really disappointing. They go, no, they said that was the best thing about the whole day, is seeing it tear apart an ibis. 
But it's like stuff like that. You just go, oh, that's a bit, you know, we're much more sanitized now in general than uh, what we used to be. There's a uh, scripture in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22 to 24 talks about some other reasons why people um, think it's stupid. It says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And for the Jews, they had a rule in the Old Testament that anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed. So for them, they're just going, this is really stupid. So you're telling me this guy who got hung from a tree is going to save everyone? They're going, and the Christians are going, yes, that's what we're saying. Go, well, that's dumb. That's really stupid. Then he goes on to say, stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And you can imagine if uh, you're a Gentile or a Greek seeking wisdom, you'd look at Jesus being killed on the cross and people saying, this is going to save everyone. And he's going... Are you serious? He just got slaughtered. You're an idiot. He just got nailed to a cross. But listen to this. This is verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1. But to those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's the difference, isn't it? It can look really dumb to a whole bunch of people. It can sound dumb when you're telling someone who doesn't know Jesus about how he died for him. But you know what? It's powerful. And the fact that a whole bunch of you are here today is because it's powerful, isn't it? Amen? Yeah. It's powerful. It's transformative and it's powerful. You see, I think the reason why the atheists struggle so much with the stupidity of the atonement is that they, they don't understand sin well enough. Because when you realise the nature of the situation <laughs> and the, the perils of the human condition, you realise that something incredible needed to happen to get these people out of the fix that they were in, to get these trapped people free. Because the only way to put away sin for good was for someone to enter the real tabernacle with their own blood. You see, it's not... The Old Testament is some poor, unsuspecting lambs out there having a good feed on some grass and all of a sudden they're losing their head, right? They didn't ask for it. They didn't want it. They just kind of got co-opted into it. And the deal was, it was so bad, someone had to go in willingly with their own blood and get it sorted. Now, last section in point three. Jesus cancels and nullifies sin. Jesus' death dealt with all sin, past, present and future. Think about that. Tomorrow's covered, right? It's covered. You love Jesus, you trust in him to forgive you, tomorrow's covered. And next week. And all that stuff that you did six months ago or three months ago that still bothers you a bit, that's covered. And maybe even with your thoughts sinning now, all right, hopefully maybe you're having evil thoughts about my nose. It's God's judgment upon me or something. I don't know. Judgment by wires. Do you know what I mean? It's all covered. It's all covered. You know, and I can stand up here and I'll say it in a sentence. Your sin, past, present, future is all covered. And you, you can probably sit there and you go, that's eh, nice. That's not just nice. I mean, imagine if there was some kind of amnesty that Jesus died and he goes, right, you've been a Christian long enough. So at 3 p.m. on Sunday the 5th of January 2014, the cover stops. <laughs> all right? You're on your own, right? I gave you enough of a start. Just get it right, will you? Just get it sorted. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm done with it. That would be bad, right? 
probably the church will be empty next week. God's forgiveness deals with the demons of our past. It deals with our fears and our worries about the present. And it deals with our fears of the future. There's not going to be a time where he doesn't love you. There's not going to be a time where he doesn't forgive you. Because it was done. It was done. When Jesus did it, he did it all. And it's not like this afternoon you're going to come up with funky, some funky, dodgy thing to do and he's just, oh, what the heck are you doing? I didn't include that one. All right? It won't happen. It's, it's like every single... And some of you just going, you might be going, oh, okay, well, let's get into it. <laughs> let's get ourselves trapped. No, don't do that either. You see, God's forgiveness means you can be a radical risk taker, right? And you can blow it. Because it doesn't matter that much. Your record doesn't matter that much. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much. So you just get out and have a good swing, right? Is anyone with me on this? Have a crack. Have a crack. Just have a crack. It's not in the Bible. Have a crack. It's on the girl saying, have a crack. And that's what God's grace and his forgiveness is, right? It's, it's the old thing. You're better off to fail trying to do something and to fail doing nothing. And that, I mean, that's a huge problem for males, right? Usually males get up into all sorts of trouble because they're doing nothing, all right? Males, far better off. Get off your backside. Get out there and start doing some stuff and fail doing some stuff, but at least try to do something positive. I think God's pretty sweet with that. He's got it covered. It's just like God, I'm going out and I really want to do a good job of it. That was kind of our deal with the project here. We kind of started it. We said, right, two years in, if we need to close it up, we'll close it up. We'll give it a good crack for two years and we'll see what happens. All right? And if we fail, it's okay because Jesus has died and he's sorted everything out. But the interesting thing is often, don't we? I mean, Jesus made sin inoperative but we often make it operative, don't we? Let's just, just give it a bit of CPR. You know, just breathe a bit of life back into it every now and then. Just, and that's a weird thing too, you know. You just say, oh, Jesus, come down and he's just going to deal with sin totally, nullify it, cancel it, just deal with it. And we just resurrect it. Pray a prayer of resurrection over it and come back, baby, and let's get into it. And then you just go, oh, you know, have you ever seen that kind of cycle? You, just, you resurrect it and you go, oh, this... It sucks, I'm stuck again. You say, God, can you just kind of help me out? So he comes in again and he says, yeah, I freed you. and I'm, You're, you're going to be okay, you'll be all good. And, and then, you know, you CPR the thing again and it's all of a sudden this beast is alive again. You just go, oh, I don't like that beast. It was fun for about 10 minutes. Is sin inoperative in your life? Because Jesus made it inoperative. Number four, here's where we finish. Jesus' dealing with sin means he can finish strong. This is what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about not giving up. And finishing, you know, one of my sons in the cross country last year, he just thought, you know, he was one of those kids, and he's a pretty good runner, but he just tore, he just went flat out for the first two-thirds of the race, and all of a sudden he's having to stick his lungs back in, you know, because they're coming out of his mouth because he hasn't breathed enough and he's been sprinting the whole way and... I mean, he did all right. I think he ended up coming second or something, right? But this kid he really wanted to beat, he didn't beat him because he went out so hard and he went out so strong. 
my older two boys worked out what you've got to do is you've got to start out at a steady pace and then come home really, really hard. You need to have enough left in the tank that you can crank it in right at the end. And um, they, they did pretty well. This is what Hebrews is all about. Crank it in right at the end. It's not like Peter out. It's like God's, you know, God's not giving you enough stuff just to kind of crawl over the finish line with grazers all over your face and on your nose and that sort of stuff because you've kind of been dragging on the gravel. He's given you enough to finish strong. That's the gig, right? So here's the thing. I'm not going to go into any of these. Sin turns people into quitters because it isolates and separates people from God. Colossians 1.20 says God reconciles. Sin deadens people. Ephesians 2 says uh, God makes people alive. You should look up these later. Sin enslaves people. People who are enslaved just want to give up, right? They just do. Romans 6 talks about being a slave to righteousness. You can get to the point with sin where you just go, I can't resist, I've just got to give in. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, no, you don't. God always provides a way out for you. And then you've got this idea that people have sometimes, they just go, well, I've blown it once, I might as well throw the towel in fully. Don't throw the towel in fully, right? You blow it once, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, confess all your sins and get clean again. Get a clean sheet. You don't get a clean sheet by doing 50 things wrong. You get a clean sheet by doing one or two wrong and then going back and confessing and getting God to clean your sheet up. There's probably a few perfectionists out there who think, ah, blow it, stuff it. I was going well for two days. And if you're going well for two days, I need to talk to you because I need some help, obviously. But if you're going well for two days and you go, ah, stuff it, I might as well give in now. Don't give in, all right? Because the issue is not a good record. The issue is a clean record, right? Amen? The issue is not a good record, it's a clean record. And unfortunately, the church is pretty well known for kind of giving this uh, idea out and putting this idea out that people have got to clean themselves up to be a Christian. You don't clean yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. You're a muddy, dirty kid that can't wipe the stuff off their shirt because their hands are muddy too. You just make it worse. There's only one who can clean you up and purify you. You go back to him and you ask him to forgive you. And sin blinds. Sin snowballs in blindness. But God gives the Holy Spirit so people can see things inside of them and see themselves clearly and the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Jesus deals with sin in a way that means that you can finish strong. Let me give you a couple more reasons and then we're going to have communion. Jesus' mediation guarantees your inheritance. Did you notice this at the start of Hebrews 9? the section that we read in verse 15. I'll read it through. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. One commentator suggests that I've read, suggests that the therefore applies to what follows, not what um, preceded it, all right, which is usually what therefore means. Now, listen to this. Have you ever been in a situation where you just go, we just need someone to come in and take control and do something because it's a shambles? We just need someone good that can come in and get this thing sorted out. All right. This is when I read this, I kind of see the place is in a shambles. No one knows what to do, and there's a guy that comes in and he takes charge because he wants it to get to a particular conclusion. Do you see that here? Jesus is saying, "I want these people to get their internal inheritance, to be with me, and to be in heaven, and to just be perfect. I want them to get that, so I'm going to take charge of this situation, and I'm going to get it all sorted out." That's good news, amen. He's a take charge kind of guy. I, um, one of the classic things that used to be said about Michael Jordan, the basketball player, I enjoy watching a bit of NBA when I get the chance, they used to say that 
of all the people, of all the players in the NBA, the guy that you'd want to give the ball to, when there was 10 seconds left and they were behind and they needed to hit a shot to win a game, you give it to Michael Jordan. The clutch shot. That's the clutch shot. Now, you know, the interesting thing is he had quite a high percentage and apparently LeBron James at the moment, who plays for the Miami Heat, he, he's kind of the clutch shot shooter for the, the Miami Heat. It's like there's five guys on the court, they need to hit a shot to win a game and they've, and they've got the ball and they've got less than 10 seconds, you've just got to get it to LeBron. Do you know what percentage of clutch shots LeBron hits? It's under 50%. And he's like the best one in the league as far as I can tell at the moment. This guy's 100%, right? He's the, Jesus is the clutch shot shooter, right? When everything's in trouble, you just got to get, get the ball to Jesus. Now, that sounds a little bit trite, but you get what I'm saying, right? Get the ball to Jesus because he's going to get this thing sorted. And you need to pause for a minute and ponder that. You can finish strong because death turns backwards because of what Jesus did. In Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm just going to show you another quick clip from uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Aslan took the place of Edmund. He was killed on the stone table. And this is the, uh, the scene just after it. Isn't that a great line at the, at the end there? The stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. That happened with Jesus. And you know, that doesn't just apply to Jesus, that applies to you too. I was talking to one of my sons last night who was scared of dying. I said, you love Jesus and you trust him. Jesus, death, I got up and I showed him the door. I said, what's this? What's it, what? It's a door. I said, well, how do you use it? He said, well, you open the door. I said, that's right. I said, what do you do now? He goes, well, you go through it. You see, that's what happens to death when Jesus deals with sin. It becomes a doorway to something way better than you can even imagine. And God's not going to be the dodgy parent who reminds you of sin when he's blessing you. Do you, get that? Do you see that here? At the end, it says in the, in the last phrase there, Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's, the sin's done with. It's like the next time he comes, he's not going to talk about that. He doesn't need to talk about it. He's, he's dealt with it. He's not like the parent who just goes, well, I was going to give you a treat, but now that I just saw you do that, I'm not giving it to you. I'm not doing that. You know, he, he doesn't do that because it's dealt with. It's done. He doesn't need to talk about it again. You just, the next time he comes, you're just going to be friends. True? It's just going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. So let me, uh, the last one's this. You plus him plus heaven are going to be too good for words. True? Amen. Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I ask you this morning, are you eagerly waiting for him? Is death game? Do you know what? It's difficult. It becomes the more you have invested in this life, the more scary death is, right? But it doesn't matter how invested you are in this life. And I'm not just talking about possessions. I'm talking about family. I'm talking about connections. Death is always going to be gain. Always going to be gain. And let me ask you this question. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or not? Because if you're not, 
you've got a problem. Maybe you're enjoying the world too much. Maybe you've forgotten what God's like. Maybe you're loving other things too much. I'm just telling you, if you don't eagerly wait for him, you're probably in a place where you don't get what's coming. If you've got what's coming, you'd eagerly look forward to it. I just want to finish with this out of Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9. It's just a little refresher about what's coming for you, right? This is Isaiah 25. It's all about, it's a prophecy about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Check this out. This is beautiful. I'm going to go through line by line. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, listen to this, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Isn't that cool? This is like the best Christmas banquet you could ever imagine multiplied by a million, multiplied by infinity. It's just, you know, some people go, oh, heaven, just, just, I'm going to get a sore back from being down and worshipping all the time. No, well, it looks like the first thing that gets to happen is you'll get around a table and you have a big feast. That's a pretty good one, all right? And God's putting the wine on, <laughs> okay? It's like the teetotalers out there just, well, you don't quite this one. You just cut that little bit out. God's putting wine on, right? And it's going to be nice wine. Listen to this, a rich of rich food full of marrow. You know, when I read that, I just think a two-inch steak, you know. He's going to grill it up. It's just going to be perfect, right? And he'll serve it up on a plate or have some angels. I don't know. Maybe there's a steak cooker angel. I've never heard of him, but... Of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. A veil... That is spread over all nations. And uh, it's a bit, commentators don't really know exactly what that's talking about, but one, of, one commentator suggests that probably one of the things they thought it was talking about was God's going to swallow up death. See that? There's a covering that's cast over all peoples, there's a veil spread over all nations, and that's death, isn't it? And they're saying God's going to swallow, on that day, death will be consumed, totally, for, forevermore. Now, that's, you don't get to eat that at the feast, right? That will be good, won't it? It's just like that will be a good item. You know, the, the MC says, right, God's going to deal with death now. You just go, well, that would be good, all right? Because that's not nice. Now, where it ends up is nice, but it's not, death is not nice. And this one, how tender is this one? And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is going to happen on that day. Do you know, I don't even know how many angels God's got, right? But even if he didn't have enough to do the tear wiping, he could make one, right? He could, it's like of all people that could delegate this job, that would be God, right? He could delegate tear wiping. But is, this is not a delegated job. This is a his deal, right? At the end, everything that's made you sad, everything that's made you upset, he's going to wipe those tears away. And the reproach of his people... He will take away from all the earth. So every time, see, reproach is an expression of disapproval or disappointment. This is kind of gets back to what I was saying before. Even the best apologetics, even the best descriptions about Jesus' death on the cross, people are going to think you're dumb. They're going to think you're stupid. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to take all that away. So you can actually be radically talking about Jesus and about the cross and people can even dish you and just give you a really hard time about it. 
and think that you're a loser and an idiot and one day God's going to remove all of that reproach that's come to you because of that. All of the martyrs in India, in Muslim countries that have been worked over and been called an idiot and been called stupid and been told to turn around and head the other way and deny Jesus, all of those, God's going to take their reproach away. It will be said on that day, someone will make this announcement, maybe you'll say it, I think probably you'll say it, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I think you'll say that. You think you will? Eagerly. Yeah? I mean, wouldn't it? I mean, if I... I don't... It's not going to happen, right? Because Jesus said no one knows the time. But if I said to you, Jesus is coming back in 10 minutes. That would be really sweet, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be good? And not just because, you know, you don't like your job. <laughs> but because it's just going to be amazing. It's just going to be amazing. Why don't you pray with me? God, help us to wait for you eagerly. Help us to see you truly. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you and doesn't trust in you to forgive them for their disobedience to you, I pray that you'd draw their hearts to you and you'd you'd lead them to trust in you today and that they would get the biggest problem in their life dealt with and for the rest of us God that you'd help us to get the biggest problem in our life dealt with on a regular basis Amen